You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas, and joining us, as always, from USA Today and MMAJunkie.com, it's your friend and mine, it's Ben Folks. Ben, uh, how are you doing this week? I'm doing fantastic. How are you doing? I'm doing well, too. We got another uh, package in the mail this week, absolutely full of Turkish delight. God damn it. We got uh, two matching Big Turk candy bars, plus... uh, a package of Turkish Delight, Big Turk. Uh, my French is is not terrific, but it looks like it says Bites Bouchers on it. Okay. Uh, we also got some what looks like pretty fancy uh, Aladdin, famous Turkish Delight. Wow. And this is all, quite an array. No, I'm not even done yet. Also, a bag of uh, chocolates uh, that are labeled, they say they are irresistibly smooth. Okay. Well, we'll have to try that out. If this is what happens when we go on the podcast and talk about how we've never heard of some like food item or like I I think we could have used this a little better because Turkish delight kind of seems a little bit gross now that we've had it and now we've got way too much of it like can I retroactively claim that I've never heard of like coffee crisp because that's something I actually want Canadians to send to me it should have been like Angus beef never heard of it yeah yeah any good what is this prime rib I hear people talking about. <laughs> This uh, this latest package came to us from a, a longtime listener and and frequent uh, Twitterer Colleen from uh, from Edmonton. She sent this down to us, so uh, thanks to her for that. We definitely appreciate that. And here's the thing I wanted to mention about this package that she sent us. Uh, it says on the front of it that it is insured for one hundred dollars. So that makes me wonder. I don't know how this, like, when you insure something in the mail, I don't know how that works. Like, Maybe it works differently in Canada. If this never arrived, does Colleen get 100 bucks? Because if that's the case, we, we didn't get this. Yeah, we could work this something was, out. This was lost in the mail. We'll scratch your back, you scratch ours. Well, you know our back saying. has already been scratched by this pile <laughs> of Turkish delight. Our back is covered in gross candy. Anyway, uh, thanks, Colleen, for that. Uh, this episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast is brought to you by GoDaddy. Right now, CME listeners can get exclusive deals from GoDaddy.com. You can get one new or transfer.com domain name for only $1.99 for the first year of registration with additional years at $9.99. Just visit their website and enter the promo code EVENT or click on the GoDaddy, GoDaddy, damn it, I was so close. Click on the GoDaddy banner from CoMainEvent.com and enter the promo code event once you get there. Some limitations apply. Check GoDaddy for details. I think you got cocky. That's what I think it is. I did. I was really rolling for a second and then. You know what? That's the thing. And with the GoDaddy ad, it lures you into a false sense of security. And then it just <laughs> right. sneaks up and bites you. Yeah. You can't get too comfortable. You got complacent. It's what happened. Three rounds this week, as usual, for the co-main event podcast. In round number one, Luke Rockhold returns on Wednesday to try to put some distance between himself and Vitor Belfort's left foot. And in round number two, world wrestling entertainment of all things seemed to pretty much put it right in the face of the UFC last week with the unveiling of its own digital network, which includes, among other things, pay-per-views. Huh. 
man, what's really going on? <laughs> you owe Brandon Vera a nickel now. And in round number three, anybody who wants to fight Habib Nurmagomedov, please dega stand up. I <laughs> see what I did there. I'm. I gotta go. Just. Uh, I just. I just remembered I gotta be somewhere. Where he's from is Dagestan. Because that was awful. Dagestani. And now I hate you, Habib Nurmagomedov. Okay. All right. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me? And just saying stuff. But right now, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail comes to us from Sean Sheehan. He writes, Was it foolhardy for Uriah Faber to take the title shot against Barrow on such short notice, considering it will like more than likely be his last? I think he means Henan Barrow here. The monster. The monster. Um, I don't know that I would say that it's foolish, but it certainly seems like uh, he's bitten off a lot to chew here, to me yeah. at least. Well, I, I can see uh, Sean Sheehan's point here, but also put yourself in Uriah Faber's shoes, right? The UFC comes to you and says, hey, good news, man. You know how you've been angling for that, what is the 17th title shot now? Uh, well, a spot just opened up, so we can give it to you if you can be ready in three weeks or whatever it is. If you say no in that situation, you know how the UFC looks upon stuff like that. Like, then they're faced with a decision like either we got to find somebody else to step in for that title shot, which then... You know, who knows where it goes from there or delay the fight, neither one of which they're going to be happy about. You kind of got to say yes if you want to stay in good standing there. And if you're going to want that extra title shot, you got to be in good standing to begin with. So it seems like he didn't have a whole lot of options there. Plus, he's already fought the guy once. Uriah Faber's not one of those guys that, you know, is at the bar all night uh, between fight camps and so then has to spend a lot of time getting himself in shape or getting down to weight. So he's probably pretty good there. It's not like he has a whole bunch of new stuff to learn about the guy. You just got to figure out, you know, how to win this time. Uh, all things considered, I, I don't see how he could have done anything differently. Yeah, Uriah Faber is one of those dudes that we hear about who stays ready so he doesn't have to gets ready uh, <laughs> or whatever. But uh, at the same time, like, don't you think... I do think that, that I agree with Sean Sheehan's point that this seems like an awful tough draw for Uriah Faber to have to uh, get himself ready to fight Henan Barrow on like three weeks' notice, regardless of like what kind of shape you keep yourself in. And uh, wouldn't you think that Uriah Faber, of all people, had, had reached the, the level inside the UFC family where he could tell them, you know what, not this one for me, I just fought... Uh, I need to take a little time to get myself right, and then uh, then I'll I'll come back and and fight Hendon Barrow. It seems like you know if 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 anyone of all people, Uriah Faber, could have been a guy who would have had some political capital to spend to say I, I don't necessarily want to take what very well could turn out to be my last title shot in the UFC on on such short notice. I mean, shit, Nate Diaz did just did it as we'll we'll talk about in an upcoming round. And yeah, it, it seems, seems like it seems to be going over super well for him too. No, it seems to be going over terribly. But that's the <laughs> thing. Like, don't you think it's that that, that Nate Diaz and his crew sat down at some point and was like, motherfucker, you're Nate Diaz. You can turn down whatever you want. It would seem like your eye favor could, could, could do something similar. Well, yeah, I'm sure he could. And I, I don't think that uh, we'd see Dana White in full, like, apoplectic promoter mode the way he does sometimes when he doesn't get his way. And so, then suddenly the dudes who are his best buddies, uh, you know, last night are suddenly now his mortal enemies and he's going to, you know, go on there and rail about them to the media. I don't think he would have gone all the way in that direction, but it might have been a thing where, okay, all right, you're going to be difficult about this. Well, then, hey, maybe we don't need to give you a 26th title shot uh, after you've already lost the others. Maybe we'll just make you wait a while. I, I, I can totally understand 
uh, why he, he wants to step up here. And hey, maybe you figure, look, if I'm reasonably in shape, I just fought, I, I, I didn't get hurt, you know, I still feel, feel pretty sharp. Maybe it's a, a problem for Barrow to switch opponents. Yeah, that's actually just what I was going to say. Maybe he feels like it'll be uh, harder for Barrow to get more ready for Uriah Faber than it will for Uriah Faber to get more ready for Henan Barrow. Although, one factor that he may not be taking into account there is that Henan Barrow is a monster. Well, one thing uh, Henan Barrow has to take into account is the bang effect. And also the fact that Faber is in that Belfort zone right now, as we found out at the uh, oh, no, UFC one sixty-eight press conference or whatever, or one sixty-eight. Uh, next question this week comes to us from Ruben L. He writes: I get that there was not much going on in MMA last week, so going the all listener mail. He says parenthetically in a scary voice. Scary? Yeah, I thought it was creepy. Well. Splitting hairs now. Uh, going the all-listener mail route was understandable, but not talking about Safadine versus Lim at all was stretching it. Safadine never really got the props he deserved as the last Strike Force welterweight champion. In his most recent fight, he showed some neat kickboxing skills and discipline. He also showed a complete lack of killer instinct and gas tank to last five rounds. However, it does catapult him as an interesting matchup for some welterweights. Safadine versus Brown, Safadine versus Campman. Well, we know that one. Campman also taking a vacation. That's right. Now at this point. Uh, I'd even watch Safadine versus Ellenberger. Jake, that is. Uh, what's really up with Tarek Safadine? Um, you know what? I think that it speaks to the... Uh, fact the, that you didn't watch it? The relevant... Well, I'll, I'll get to that. Okay. But it, it kind of speaks to the relevance and like how much this fight mo- moved the needle that we did an all-listener mail show last week. And as far as I know, I don't think we got a single email. If we got one, we didn't encounter it during the hour-long <laughs> yes, show that we true. did about uh, Tarek Safadine fighting in the, in the main event of this first fight pass only show over in Singapore uh, where he took on uh, some guy named Lim, who I understand never fought in the UFC before. No. And, uh, uh, well, you know, actually, have you watched the fight no, at, at this point? No. Well, actually, you know, and it's it's not a bad fight. Uh, if you go in, I was thinking that you were going to say uh, that the reason we didn't talk about it was because of your, we all know about your stance that you don't want to act like these fight cards are real. Right. We still can't talk about it because I haven't watched it. <laughs> well, it's not a bad it's not a bad fight. Although you know, basically the same points he made about Safadine, pretty much Tarek Robert Safadine, pretty much hold true. Uh, you know, looked good, good kickboxing, all that stuff. And then when he had Lim hurt pretty badly, and it looked like you know, here, here's where you can really go in there and finish the guy. And it looked like him Lim might even quit on his stool at some point. It seemed like uh, Safadine just kind of was gonna content to, to ride it out and then kind of gassed out and kind of got rocked a little bit there towards the end. Um, so, you know, it, it was an interesting performance. It was one of those ones where Lim, just by surviving and acting like he, you know, just didn't mind being hit about the legs, head, and torso area over and over again, scored some kind of tough guy points, uh, but that's about it. But, again, again, I, I think that the, the point that we're making here that you're right about is that if we don't hear from anybody that they feel like this is a like a thing a big thing that happened if we don't you know nobody feels compelled to really discuss it seems like the biggest screw job here is for poor Tarek Robert Safadine right yeah who goes on there fighting on an internet only stream former strike force for his champion. UFC debut that's right he he should have come in with a little more head of steam there uh oh and uh I just looked up Lim had Lim was 2 and 0 in the UFC no uh, kidding. Bought, yeah hmm. um, might have must have fought on those fight pass prelims that everybody's lining up to pay 10 dollars for 
Yeah, yeah, that must have been it. Uh, but, you know, I, I do wonder how some of the, the fighters are going to react to that stuff. Because if they come to you and say, okay, good news, you're in the main event of this next fight card. And you're like, oh, wow, I didn't really think I was main event caliber yet. But okay, yeah, I know, I'll step up, I'm ready to prove that. Of a fight pass show that's going to air to your friends at 4 a.m. And it's going to be in Kuala Lumpur. It sounds right now like you're talking about Alexander Gustafson, <laughs> former Gusty. UFC light heavyweight championship challenger, who goes straight from his number one contender uh, championship opportunity with John Jones to fighting in the main event of a fight pass show. You know who I bet is pumped about that? Alexander Gustafson. That's what I bet. I bet no one is more excited about Alexander Gustafson fighting on a, an Invicta FC stream uh, than Alexander Gustafson. <laughs> well, you know what, though? That is one where I, I guess we, it's hard to criticize the UFC on both sides of that because it's like, okay, on one hand, we're going to say Fight Pass is bullshit and the, the cards you're putting on there are bullshit because of who's on there. Um, but then when you do put a real fight on there, that's actually the kind that would make people consider subscribing just to watch that one fight. Uh, and we turn around and criticize them for that. I mean, what do we want out of it? I want them to act like it is what it is. It's something that nobody should watch except for <laughs> like super hardcore fans that have nothing else to do. That's what it is. That's what it should be. There should be no expectation that anybody else is going to watch any Fight Pass shows until they turn it into a product that people want to buy, which is exactly the time that I'll, I'll jump on the train as soon and you, as it becomes an attractive property. And you don't think the, that the Gustafson fight is that? No, that's just a screw job for Alexander Gustafson. Okay. Who else is fighting on that card? Name me five other fighters that are fighting on that card. Go. Uh, Don't look at it now. Come uh, on. Pascal Crowley. See? I rest my case, Your Honor. <laughs> Damn it. Uh, all right. Next piece of listener mail comes to us from John Van Note. He writes, Keith Kaiser resigns right before Vitor Belfort is going to apply for a TUE discuss exclamation point. Um, yeah, you know, we, we got a lot of uh, e uh, emails this week that were almost exactly like this, uh, the, referencing, obviously, the fact that Nevada Athletic Commission, what was Keith Kaiser, chairman? Executive director. Executive director. Uh, Keith Kaiser resigned uh, late on a Friday afternoon yeah. this past week. Man, I talked to him on the phone on Thursday about an unrelated issue. Not, no, not even going to mention it. Not even going to bring you it thought, up. You thought he was going to be like, oh, yeah. hey, Ben. By, by the way. Just, I thought you might want to know. Hey, this isn't for publication or anything, is it? <laughs> uh, so yeah, Mark or Keith, I see. I got him confused with Mark Hunt there for a second because yeah, of the yeah. uh, obvious similarities. Well, I did wake Keith Kaiser up from a massage. Uh, so Keith Kaiser resigns uh, late on a Friday afternoon last week. Uh, we got several emails. Uh, tr asking if, if it was related to or implying that it could somehow be related to Vitor Belfort about to apply for a testosterone replacement therapy exemption in Nevada. Uh, I'm going to guess that the two probably aren't exactly related. Kaiser got a job with the attorney general's office. So let's not act like he didn't land on his feet here. I don't know if he's going to make the 95 grand that he made as executive director of the uh, Nevada State Athletic Commission. But uh, so far, the best story that I've read about it from Kevin Ioli on yahoo.com kind of kind of laid it all out. And uh, once you start to think about it, you know, because Keith Kaiser did, he did get into some hot water with promoters and fans and stuff like that. And the, the timing of it was a little bit weird since we were only uh, a couple of months removed from that very strange interview that Dana White did with 
uh, uh, Ariel Helwani, where he was like, well, I'm not going anywhere. That's right. Shrug at the camera. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, the truth is, Keith Geiser was probably in more trouble over the uh, boxing judging stuff that happened on his on his watch than he was for any sort of uh, snafu that he got into with the UFC. At least that's my takeaway from it, uh, because of the the somewhat hinky judging stuff that had happened in high-profile boxing fights in right. the last couple of years. It does, though, like we've talked before about uh, how it's in the UFC's best interest to not take like these public shots at the commission that it deals with most often, uh, especially if the idea is to gradually undermine it to get what you want in terms of like, you know, Vitor Belfort testosterone exemption. That's one of the things that has caused Dana White to kind of go off on the Nevada commission. And then he went off about on them after the, the judging and the GSP Johnny Hendricks fight. And when you do that kind of stuff, like imagine now Vitor Belfort does get that testosterone exemption. Like how are we not going to look at it and be like, okay, so Dana White makes these cryptic remarks about how change needs to come. The governor needs to look at the, the Nevada Athletic Commission, and he's not going anywhere. So, and then, you know, a couple months later, the executive director, the guy who had said publicly Vitor probably wouldn't get an exemption, he resigns uh, somewhat abruptly. Um, and then, lo and behold, Vitor gets what, what he wants, the UFC gets what it wants. Like, people are going to connect those dots, whether they're there or not. Like, that that just looks bad for the UFC, the same way they had always talked about how they had run toward regulation. Like, you want at least the appearance of a strong, independent regulator, not somebody that you can just kind of sap gradually from without until it, it, it caves and gives you what you want. Well, you don't know, man. Maybe the next executive director of the Nevada Athletic Commission is going to be an iron-fisted, law-and-order-by-the-book guy who's going to come in and, and use an executive order to outlaw testosterone replacement therapy on day one. You don't know. Maybe. Because that's what everyone wants from an athletic commission is a hard-nosed, <laughs> law-and-order guy that's going to prevent high-level fight events from coming to your town. There's just tons of... of People beating down doors saying, we need this thing to be tighter, tighter regulated, man. We don't want these shows. I mean, I guess if you live in New York, that's true. But I guess I'm being sarcastic, but I'm making the point like no one like we, we talk a lot on this show about about regulation and, and athletic commissions, uh, sometimes with somewhat lofty expectations. Uh, but the truth is, uh, there's really not that much uh, swaying these people in that direction. All of the potential factors influencing their decisions typically go the other way, right? Which is why I feel like we should approach it. Like we, if nobody else, should approach it with higher expectations uh, and a higher standard to hold them to, even if they miss it, just so they at least feel the pressure to get closer to it, just so they know that somebody's paying attention so they can't just rubber stamp fucking goddamn everything uh, without, you know, getting their name splashed across the headlines. Right. I agree with you. I just don't think that's going to happen in the <laughs> in the search to replace Keith Kaiser. Right? You don't think it'll get the, maybe like what's that guy Sheriff Joe Sheriff Joe from uh, Arizona? He's a real hard ass, right? Get him in there. Chuck Norris, maybe. Yes. Chuck Norris would not cotton to this bullshit. That's what if Chuck Norris was not currently jacking testosterone into his own system, <laughs> I'm sure true. he would be 100% against it. Anyway, last piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Scott Sherman. He writes, the UFC's just cause raising of the Chris Weidman versus Anderson Silva. That's for you, Chad. Thank you. Uh, pay-per-view price by $5 looks pretty savvy. If the reports of a million plus buy, if, if the reports of a 1 million plus buys are true. That said, the disclosed payroll for all the fighters was 1.8 million and the UFC just made an extra 5 
five million out of the blue. Anderson Silva probably got a pretty penny in the pay-per-view cut, though who knows if Weidman got anything contractually. Have you heard any rumblings about whether undisclosed bonuses were especially nice for UFC 168, or did Dana just find a quick way to pay for importing a white Christmas to the desert for his kids? Do you think that this, the success of this will mean more random price increases down the road? I can answer the last question. Yes. <laughs> Emphatically, yes. Yeah, you're probably Once right you raise that. it one time, it's easier to raise it again the next time. Yeah, especially if you raise it one time and you see that it doesn't significantly affect like the numbers of people willing to pay for it as long as uh, the show is big enough and it feels like a big enough deal. Uh, it did seem, didn't they offer slightly more in Fight of the Night, uh, Submission of the Night bonuses? Wasn't it like 75 instead of whatever it's been, 50 or whatever it's been? That I don't know, but that would have been pretty clever. Yeah, and that's exactly the kind of stuff that, like, that's how you do it, right? You raise the pay-per-view price for $5, which, you know, if you're going to sell uh, a million pay-per-views, it's a pretty big difference for you. Uh, then you kick an extra twenty-five grand to, to each of the, the fighters, who, you know, and they feel like it's trickling down, even though it's, like, uh, more like a, a condensation than a trickle down at that point. But I don't know. I, I haven't heard anybody saying anything like that they got a whole bunch more money off of... Uh, UFC 168 as opposed to any others. Also, we've talked before about just the nature of kind of guessing at pay-per-view numbers. Right, yeah. We're still doing that. I mean, and obviously, I think that the... uh the industry standard that we use is Dave Meltzer, uh, yeah. who, who usually is the guy who established these estimated establishes these estimated pay per view buys, and, and he has some sort of system that he goes to his house and has a bunch of uh, like squirrel bones in an old burlap sack that he throws on the table, passes his hand over it slowly, and says uh, about you know a million pay per view buys for UFC one sixty. No, I don't know how Dave Meltzer does it, but apparently we are all content to take his word for it. In, uh, in estimating these pay-per-view buys because then it becomes the industry standard. It becomes the number that they put on the Wikipedia page so that lazy reporters like myself can go there two years from now and find out what the buy rate was. Uh, but the truth is, we have no idea. We, yeah. don't, we have no idea what the buy rate was for this. And the well, UFC ain't telling us. And it seems like that stuff is probably going to only get tougher to figure out uh, as we move more toward people getting like their content from the Internet. I mean, even if Fight Pass doesn't necessarily... Uh, make it so that it, there's any easier way to to watch pay-per-views through it or anything. But like more, if more people are gonna buy the pay-per-view through their computer, does the squirrel bone system take those people into account? I would say not. Yeah, you might have to use a different kind of bones, yeah. raccoon bones or something. I don't, I'm not sure. A little uh, harder to get. <laughs> yeah, they're they're craftier to to catch and and kill. Um, the uh uh. I had something I was going to say. Now I forgot forgot what it was. Was it something about bones? You want to talk more about bones? No, I think or? it was something about UFC. Uh, UFC once. Oh, yeah, I know what it was. We talked about this last week that the uh, uh, pay per view uh, draws are looking a little thin for the UFC for at least to begin 2014. Uh, so you know, if they did make a pile of extra cash off the UFC 169 pay per view, I would suggest like, rolling it in a wad and putting it in a coffee can that <laughs> Lorenzo Fertitta can hide in his mattress because. Come June, July of next year, they might need it, man. You know, they might need a little uh, extra cash lying around, cash on hand. Yeah, if you're feeling like uh, you really got to have snow imported into the driveway and you just don't know if you can swing it this year, then you dip into the coffee can. That's what you're saying? Yeah. I'm sure they just split all that extra money amongst the fighters, man. Don't 
Don't worry about it. These guys are taken care of. Uh, anyway, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, comment, concern, you want to air to the co-main event podcast in future weeks, you can go to our website, comainevent.com and click the link in the top right hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast that will get you in touch with us. You know, we got an email this week from a guy saying it was stupid that I, that I keep telling people how they can email the podcast. Really? Yeah. As if we never get a new listener. Yeah, or as if people are, are good at following directions and, or is and people just know. don't tweet at us pretty much every week asking how they can send in listener mail or contact the podcast. If I didn't every have week. to say it, man, I believe me, I wouldn't say it. Anyway, uh, that's going to do it for listener mail. We're going to get started with round number one right now. Well, Ben, Luke Skyler Rockhold returns to the cage this week, uh, a little less than eight months after he got kicked right in the face by Vitor Belfort during his uh, Octagon debut. Um, now, what we don't want, obviously, is to get stuck into a, a sidetrack discussion about Vitor Belfort's testosterone replacement therapy. Agreed. We should instead focus on Luke Rockhold's middle name, Skyler. What the Skyler. hell is that? That's that's California, man. That's California dreaming right there. Well, at least at least his parents did the thing where, okay, we'll give him a weird middle name, but then we'll give him, you know, a, a normal first name so that if he does turn out to be a totally crazy hippie, you know, he has an option there. Yeah, he can choose. Or if he, you know, he wants right. to be an investment banker. That's right. If he Nothing wants to someday be on the Supreme Court. Mr. Luke Rockhold Esquire. That's right. right. Uh, we don't want to talk a great deal about Belfort's testosterone replacement therapy. We know at this point that we've decided that performance probably not as legitimate as it could be. At the same time, though, uh, how much, if any, do you believe that it uh, altered the way that we look at Luke Rockhold? Because he is the dude that, you know, last time out got kicked right in the face. Uh, yeah. And I, I would think that that leading up to this fight with uh, Costa Filibu would be something that he's still sort of trying to distance himself from. Yeah, especially because, you know, he hasn't fought since then, had dealt with some injury stuff, and then was a while coming back. That's, I think, one of the things that makes this fight. This has got to be the one where you, you come out there and give people a reason to think some other way of you, especially when you just think about... You know, the way, like, the path he took through up through Strikeforce was a Strikeforce champion, and yet not a whole lot of people necessarily knew what that meant or, or knew, you know, how good he probably was. And so then when they see him for the first time in the UFC and he's getting kicked upside his damn head, then that might be the only thing they know of Luke Rockhold is the guy who got spinning kicked, right? So this is why, like, it seems like a whole lot of pressure for this fight, uh, at least for him, because you got to go out there and do something memorable. Yeah, and, and I assume for Luke Rockhold, it must, even though he up to this point has said most of all the right things uh, about that knockout and about Vitor Belfort, regardless of whether or not the guy that you fought was all jacked up on testosterone, I would think that uh, much like Ben Henderson years ago, who got you know kicked in the face by Anthony Pettis after he jumped off the cage, I would assume that the feeling of getting spin kicked in the face and, and being on the wrong end of what was arguably the best knockout of 2013 
probably eats at you a little bit. And knowing that that highlight is going to be around uh, as long as you both shall live, maybe longer, uh, and that it's probably going to be shown during the UFC hype package for every event from now until the end of times, uh, uh, probably doesn't sit well with a guy like Luke Rockhold, who prior to that knockout had won something like nine fights in a row. And as you said, had become the strike force middleweight champion uh back in 2011 and had been on a nice little win streak you know i you know beating uh, jacare souza and keith jardine and then tim kennedy to close out his strike force career so a guy who had uh things had been going his way before he came in there and, and got knocked out by belford so i bet even though he kind of says that he's cool with it uh that uh, the testosterone use eats at him, and we know the fact that the knockout eats at him because he's talked about that openly. He wants to go out there and, and take a step away from that. The testosterone use does eat at him. I talked to him uh, last week, yeah, uh, and, and not surprisingly, uh, I asked about the testosterone stuff, and we, we talked about it for a good little while. One of the things I thought that was interesting that he said, though, um, was, you know, I asked, what do you do with with that loss in your mind do you put like an asterisk next to it because he definitely thinks that you know trt is kind of a uh, an end run around the rules that guys are, are using it to cheat and get away with it uh and he said something to the effect that no he doesn't put an asterisk next to it but kind of expects us to that that's what you know media and the fans can do but for you know from the fighter's perspective he has to just regard it as a loss and move on um, but I got the sense that he would not be too brokenhearted if the rest of us decided that it was kind of bullshit that uh, he had to go down there to Jawaga Dasul, uh, nailed it, uh, and get kicked in the head by a dude on testosterone. So, you know, I, I can understand, like, all those viewpoints from him. Uh, I could also understand how it then makes this a much bigger fight than on paper Lou Rockhold versus Costa Philip, who is in a Wednesday night fight night. I mean... Obviously, if it's you fighting, everyone is a big one. But it seems like this one in particular, with as long as it took him to be able to get healthy, to get back in there, and the that that pressure to go out there and do something to make people remember you some other way. It, I mean, because we've talked about this before, but especially for fighters, since you get so few opportunities, there's always the danger that you will be just forever identified by something terrible that happened to you. And it's not to say that if you go out there and knock out Costa Philippou that everybody will, will immediately replace that in their minds. But that this is a situation, right, where that can work for you. That whole, you're only good as good as your last fight. Uh, to a certain extent, you're only as bad as your last fight either. You go out there and do something awesome, you know, then you can start to move on. Stuff can start to build from there. Uh, yeah, personally, I'm a little bit surprised that Luke Rockhold still has a job uh, after speaking with you this week. Okay, here uh, we go. You know, we, we had uh, Logan Stanton and Natasha Wicks both uh, lost their jobs in close proximity to a conversation they once had with Ben Folks Several years ago. It was several years now ago. Now we've got Keith Kaiser is out as a Resigned. Nevada athletic chairman after, well, hey, if the after worst speaking thing, with Ben Folks. If it the seems worst like thing that, that happens to you is you, I interview you and then you get a job at the attorney general's office. Boo-hoo. Now, see, that's where it would come in handy that Luke Rockhold's first name is Luke. That's not right. Skyler. Yeah. Because... You got a better chance of getting hired by the Nevada State Attorney General's office yeah. as Luke Rockhold the, Esquire than, than L. Skyler Rockwell. That's right. The The Attorney General's office p picks up your resume and sees Skyler on there uh, and then realizes that you're a man. And it, yeah, you might get shuffled to the bottom of the pile. Now, uh, for, for Constantinos Philippou, uh, who uh, 
for his last fight, I know he had he had not trained with uh, Sarah Longo, right? He had gone right. somewhere else. Uh, I don't know if he's back with them or not for for this Luke Rockhold fight, but uh, he he certainly wouldn't be that camp's most famous middleweight anymore. Uh, owing to what happened with Chris Weidman and Anderson Silva this last year. But but Philip Owens himself had also been on a nice little run, uh, you know, prior to uh, UFC 165 when he, he met up with Francis Carmont, or as we say in Montana, Francis Carmont. Frank uh, Carmont. Fr- Frankie Carmont and got... Uh, uh, held down, I guess you would say, and defeated by well, hey, hey, unanimous be fair. decision. Be fair to Carmont. He did hold Philippou down, but... Also threw some elbows and made angry noises when he did it. The elbows might not have connected, but if you were just listening to the fight, it sounded like one dude was getting killed in there. Yeah, and even if even if that's all he had done, it was hold down Philippou and win by decision. That would be something that dudes like Tim Boach and Court McGee could not do uh, because they were on the list of of opponents that that Philippou had just defeated while he was on this win streak. Uh, at the same time, though. He is, you know, Philip, who's not in as bad a a PR position as Luke Rockhold is, maybe because he didn't get kicked in his face. Uh, but at the same time, I would imagine that Philip, who is is just as eager to erase this memory of him himself losing a, a wrestling centric decision to to Carmont, uh last year. So I would think that this is a fight that that both guys need to win. Which, uh, if you'll pardon the fight cliche, is uh, is how you get put put yourself put yourself together a good little fight. But yeah, no, high it, stakes for everybody. It, it is a good little fight. Uh, and, you know, a, one of the good, like, Wednesday night, like, fight nights where, like, hey, this does feel like a legitimately important main event. We're going to see, you know, which guys head off. One of the things I always wonder about that thing, though, with Philippou leaving the Sarah Longo, uh, because, you know, Weidman's right there, is, I don't know, did he, was that really, like, such an urgent need? Did did Philippou really think like, well, hey, I'm right there. I'm right there ready to challenge for the title because I don't see that. I, I guess maybe fighters can talk themselves into believing some different stuff, but nothing about what Philippou had done up until that point suggested that they were going to be calling him for a title shot anytime soon, did well, it? Were we on the record with that? Did we know that? Is that why he left for sure? I thought that he just decided he needed to get some fresh air mm-hmm. or something, went out for a smoke and didn't come back. Yeah. That kind of a thing. No, yeah, that, that's what you do when you have a, a great win streak going, right, is you switch up teams. I'm, I'm not saying there's not something going on that we don't know about. I'm just saying that I didn't see that as a news report that he had left because of he didn't want to be in the same camp as Chris Weidman because he thought that they would fight for the title. Come on, man. Come on. You're just making stuff up over there now. Basically, but come on. <laughs> I, ca- I, I caught you in a lie just now. <laughs> no, it's true. I'm telling you, it's true. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, let's do uh, Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we will move on to round number two for this week. Uh, ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me? for this week? Well, Chad, I hate to do this. I really do. No, you don't. What is it? I, I, I wish this weren't necessary, but as... You you may have heard uh, in a recent interview with Globo, former UFC middleweight champ Anderson Silva uh, said that he does not think Chris Weidman should consider his latest victory via leg snap a win. Oh, you're not um, doing this, because Anderson Silva. Are you? It was an accident, and quote, and I'm pretty sure I would have won the fight. Okay, well that's ridiculous. I don't I don't want to do this, but in the interest of just being fair. I got to do it. Anderson, are you fucking kidding me, buddy? Come on, man. You don't need to do this. You just this this is making us all sad. 
just admit, you know, there's some crazy shit that happened, but you weren't winning anyway at that point. Fucking kidding me, man. Are you fucking kidding me? Wow, bloodthirsty, man. I'm, I'm, Metaphorically, I, I don't feel good the about this. UFC middleweight champion and greatest fighter of all time when he is down. I, he forced my hand here, Chad. He's at home on the couch with his leg propped up on that pillow. Trying to talk about how it was all a terrible accident right when he was on the verge of knocking Chris Weidman out, I'm sure, any moment. Yeah, are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? Well, Ben, it seemed like UFC fighter Matt Brown learned a valuable lesson this past week, uh, one that you and I have been learning over and over again since we started this show about 86 episodes ago, and that is that when you uh, record your voice and put it out on the internets in the form of a podcast, people actually listen to the shit that you say. Uh, And I would go a step further than that to say especially the off-handed stuff that you say and then immediately forget about while the show is uploading, uh, they listen to that stuff especially closely from my personal experience. I can say that's what seems like it, what seems like happens. Uh, so I guess, are you fucking kidding me, Matt Brown? You thought that you would just say some shit about how women in the UFC should fight topless and then you publish your podcast like oh this will be cool like no one listens to this like it'll be fine (laughs) right like how could you not know that you weren't gonna get totally and completely buried for that shit man like uh podcasting is not for amateurs dude it's for professionals i think we serious professionals i think we've proven that it is for amateurs serious audio professionals are you fucking kidding me matt brown i'm kidding me Anyway, that's going to do it for Are You Fucking Kidding Me? Uh, We're going to get started with round number two. That starts right now. Well, Chad, it's almost as if the WWE professional wrestling company figured out that, uh, you know, there is a way to roll out a digital network uh, that is actually ready to go by the time people are getting on there and doing stuff. And the way to do that is not to hurry up and rush to announce it before somebody else can. Yeah, that is what seemed like it happened here, right? It seems like this was a very... UFC thing to do, and that is that they found out that WWE was going to announce this uh, digital network, which had been in the pipe pipeline for a while. I'd heard about the WWE digital network a few months ago. Uh, as it turned out, once WWE actually announced it, it was an even better deal than what we thought it was going to be before, but uh, we'll get to that in a minute. It does seem like UFC uh, felt like they needed to cut the line a little bit here, uh, and uh uh, vault over the WWE in a rush to get its own digital network out there and in front of the public. And I think you're right. In doing so, did seemingly maybe uh, misfire a little bit because it does seem like they announced 
the UFC fight pass way, way, way before it was ready because we've heard a lot of horror stories pretty much on all sides at this point about uh, the security and how uh, it's difficult to uh, cancel your membership, uh, how that the first several months are are going to be a free trial, but at the same time, they still want you to uh, enter your credit card information. Aside from the stuff that people are having issues with, like credit card-wise and, and that kind of stuff, one of the big differences seems that like when the WWE announces theirs, it seems like immediately, the, one of, at least one of the things I read that is that it will launch on just like every platform that people would use to watch streaming services. Uh, like all the, you know, like Xbox and all, all that other, Roku and, and basically any kind of little tablet device you have immediately, uh, when the thing launches, you'll be able to watch. At least that's what people are saying now. Who knows? They, they could totally screw up the actual physical rollout of it. Uh, but they're not going to though, because this is WWE we're talking about here, man. They are and they, they do this shit right. Say what you want to about the institution of professional wrestling. And God knows every MMA dude in the world does. In fact, one of the best things about this, uh, WWE digital network announcement and the raving positive reviews that happened immediately after it was reading every MMA dude's, uh, tweet that came with a disclaimer at the beginning where he has to say, you know, I don't like wrestling or watch WWE, but this seems pretty awesome. This digital network. Because God forbid anyone would think you were a professional wrestling fan. Right. Well, what I'm saying is WWE, they're not going to, they won't, I almost guarantee it that they will have this thing dialed before they let anyone actually put their grubby pro wrestling fan mitts on it. Which seems like a brilliant idea, doesn't it? Doesn't it seem like a pretty good idea to have your shit working before you, you put it out there? Because it seems like such a better idea than the UFC's approach, which is like, we'll get out the, you know, a hasty version, but hey, we'll say it's free free trial that so you can't really complain and then when you ask about when the other stuff is going to be ready to, to access later later we'll get it fixed later uh whereas the wwe rolling it out and saying like okay here's exactly what it will be from day one it will be a ready to use product i mean it just seems like kind of a lesson in exactly how you want to do this shit which then makes me wonder what was so hard about that like why what would have been so bad if the ufc had to I mean, I guess you don't want to appear to be following in the WWE's footsteps, but I don't know. That seems way, you know, less of a concern than having this kind of flawed rollout so that people form an opinion on the, the incomplete product that is then tougher to change once your product is complete. Yeah, and it, like you said, it puts the UFC in a very weird position now where, uh, they, they keep telling us that they're going to fix all this stuff about Fight Pass. And, and so it, like, when you're, when you're actually physically looking at the service, even now you're sitting there thinking like, is this the real Fight Pass? Or like, is, am I just, is this all going to change by the time it starts? Uh, let's talk about this though, because I feel like the real, elephant in the room here with the WWE digital network, uh, aside from the, the, uh, original programming there that they're going to produce for it, which would seem to sweeten the pot even further for people that were interested in watching it. But, uh, for $10 a month, you get every WWE pay-per-view, including WrestleMania for the next year, which if you're a guy that likes to watch professional wrestling, even if you're a guy who paid for every pay-per-view, well, hell, you just saved yourself a shitload of money right there. Secondly, even if you're a guy who, who is sort of a, uh, 
you know, keeps professional wrestling at arm's length, but you're somewhat interested in it. Like that's the kind of deal where you might figure, well, shit, I'll just pay for the $10 a month and then I'll, I'll watch the pay-per-views whenever I want to. Yeah. It won't even really matter if I use any of the other, if I'm sitting around watching Legends House. Right. Uh, now, obviously WWE has a lot less to lose than the UFC in the pay-per-view game because, uh, aside from WrestleMania, the average WWE pay-per-view numbers have just been in the toilet uh for the last you know half decade or whatever i'll take your word for it uh see there you go there's your disclaimer you wouldn't know you wouldn't know man you just sit at home being manly watching guys fight man i wouldn't know anything about this fake wrestling yeah no but if your squirrel bones tell you that their uh their pay-per-views are trending downward i believe you about that (laughs) uh so my question is clearly the ufc would considerably sweeten the pot for prospective fight pass users if they added pay-per-view i guess my question is could they do that without in some way uh endangering their number one revenue stream yeah i don't know i I, that's a good question i also would wonder what exactly the usc knew about what uh the wwe network was was going to be because you would think that if i mean not that it's necessarily a complete crossover audience. Like you said, there, there's some MMA fans who are also huge pro wrestling fans, some that, you know, completely hate pro wrestling. But in that, you know, Venn diagram between the two, I'd say there's more overlap between MMA and pro wrestling fans than MMA and boxing fans for the most part. So you got to figure that, you know, a significant portion of your hardcore fan base is also going to know what's going on with the WWE's similar product and then is going to form a, an, an opinion about the worth of yours based on that comparison. Like once they find out, wait, so not only does the WWE stuff have all this, this other content available and it's immediately available on all these different platforms. I also get the pay-per-views and the UFC is charging the same monthly fee, but not throwing in the pay-per-views like then that, that starts to make you look a lot worse by comparison. I would, I would wonder like why, I mean, maybe the UFC felt like they could not make that quick of a decision to, that throw something like that in there, but it seems like you know that you're not going to come out on a favorable, favorable end if people are making that comparison, right? Yeah. And you know, even as a guy who's been really, really down on fight pass, obviously, and, and, uh, is waiting for them to, to, to significantly change the product before I would ever sign up. Uh, if you said that I could like get four UFC pay-per-views next year as part of some kind of like all a cart service where I could like, couch uh cash in my fight pass vouchers for like three or four free pay-per-views i i'd start thinking about it because that would be you know you start saving me money at that point instead of starting trying to charge me extra money for shows i didn't want to watch anyway uh so uh, i i mean from where i'm sitting uh the ufc just got buried in this thing by the wwe terribly and i was actually kind of astounded at the uh, the sheer volume of positive uh, uh, reactions when WWE announced this um, last Monday night, uh, you know, especially from MMA people kind of coming out of the woodwork to say that they thought that the WWE digital network was awesome. And I think that in response to that, and as the UFC moves forward, they're going to have to change fight pass. I just, I don't think that it's going to be an option for them to stumble forward with fight pass in the, in the current state that it is. I think they're going to have to change something dramatic about it. I think that they're going to have to do something where they offer you a couple of pay-per-views or, or offer all pay-per-views except for maybe the biggest ones. I don't know. We'll, we'll have to see what happens, but I don't think that you can just go on with the, with the service that you have and expect it to be tremendously successful. Well, I guess it depends, uh, 
what your bar for success is. One of the things I read about the WWE network was that, you know, they figured they needed about uh, a million subscribers uh, to break even on it. Um, and, you know, that's, that seems like a lot, especially because from what I read over the WWE network, uh, you know, it is same cost, 10 bucks a month, but you have to sign up like with a six month commitment, right? Like right from the start. Um, so, you know, I don't know exactly like how many, what their projected number is. Uh, I could see some value to doing it the UFC's way. You know, in this way, we will get a lot more people to, to sign up, uh, at, at least initially. Um, and then we can kind of tinker with it as we go. But I don't know. I mean, if, if you need a million people to sign up there, then yeah, I guess you do have to have like that, that offer, like, you know, the pay-per-views, some kind of hook to, to grab people on there and, and keep them there. Uh, maybe the UFC just kind of figures, Hey, we don't really need that much. We're just going to throw together some fight cards from Singapore that we were going to do anyway, just because we're trying to break into those markets and we couldn't get them on TV. So we needed something else. We don't really care that much whether you watch them or not. I, I mean, yeah, it could just be a difference the, in expectation. Yeah, if that's the case, then then that's fine. And Fight Pass is what it is. And the rest of us should stop talking about it and just let the nerds who want to watch it go watch it. Right? Nerds. Nerds. <laughs> uh, well, anything else that you wanted to talk about for the, uh, the, the, the WWE uh, digital network? I would say if the UFC was offering me pay-per-views, I would have no qualms with a, like a six-month guarantee contract. I would what, totally do that. What if it was still the same situation that it is now where you'd have to watch them on your laptop? Uh, I would probably still do that. Um, hopefully that the, I mean, there's, there's no possible way that they don't move to some kind of Apple TV, Roku, stream it through your Sony Blu-ray player as quickly as they can, because I, I'm sure that whoever is telling them how digital stuff works is telling them that people don't totally want to watch stuff on their computers. They right. want to watch it on their TVs. Uh, but you know, I'm not watching all the pay-per-views on my, on my laptop, but if it was just going to be a couple of years or, or a couple, a couple of them per year, uh, I would probably do that. But for the record, for those people counting along at home and got their own, like, Chad Dundas doomsday counter thing going, you're still a Fight Pass holdout. Put some pay-per-views on there, man. Keep Allow me to watch every UFC show on any of my devices. You got me. You got my money. Keep my credit card forever and ever. Keep those counters going. Chad Dundas still holding out. Well, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Ben, the UFC has been searching around for someone to fight Habib Abdulmanapovich Nurmagomedov. Nurmi. Nurmi. Or, you know, the thing about about Nurmi is that I always forget until I look at his Wikipedia page that his real nickname is The Eagle. The Eagle. That's I always right. forget that. I always just assume that it's actually Nurmi since that's <laughs> what we always call him and then I'm surprised that it's the that it's the eagle. Honestly, I'm kind of scared of what's going to happen when he finds out that we've been calling him Nermi for this long. Well, hopefully he never will. <laughs> okay. Uh, if anyone if any of you people out there listening tell him we're going to be pissed. I didn't make that up by the way. Uh his middle his real middle name actually is Abdul Manapovich. It's okay. all one word. All right. Uh but yeah, so the UFC was trying to 
hunt around for someone to fight him. Obviously, uh, UFC president Dana White put Nate Diaz on blast uh, on the Twitters this past week after I think they had already announced the fight. And then uh, it sounded like negotiations broke down between the UFC and the Diaz's, which is... Uh, I don't know how that is any more noteworthy than what normally happens when the UFC is trying to get a Diaz to take a fight. Uh, but, but he put it out on Twitter that Diaz had turned down the fight and then Diaz's people fired back. And then Michael Johnson came in and said he would fight, uh, Nermy if, if Diaz didn't want to. Uh, and so now we got this, uh, big scandalous situation. Uh, and I know that you got some choice quotes queued up over there yeah. uh, from Diaz manager, Mike Kogan, uh, who, who got interviewed uh, by your, your, your shop, MMA Junkie, this yeah, week. Yeah, we, we had this story up there. Uh, and, you know, for those of you who don't know Mike Kogan, it seems like no accident that Mike Kogan has ended up being uh, the manager for a bunch of the dudes who will just spout off and say some shit. Uh, you know, the guys who aren't terribly concerned thinking about like the consequences of what they say, uh, because he's kind of, you know, that same kind of dude, that kind of brash in your face dude, which makes for some awesome quotes, uh, such as in this situation where when talking about how, Hey, for all we know, maybe if Nate does wait around, like we thought he was joking about after his last win, uh, he'll end up with a title shot. Uh, it says Kogan. Pettis already said he wanted to fight Nate. Why does he want to fight Nate? He knows it's a money fight. That's the name of the game. Who else would bring that much money? Benson Henderson? Fuck no. <laughs> Which, awesome. Uh, also, I really enjoy uh, when the the whole thing comes up that basically people are trying to act like Nate Diaz is scared to fight Nermi. Uh, Kogan says, Khabib, while being a gangster fighter, he hasn't paid his dues in the UFC yet. Nate's been there for eight fucking years. Eight fucking years, and you've got people on Twitter talking about his integrity? Are you people smoking some kind of crack? Well, yeah. no, those Which people, kind, by those, the way? Those people are smoking some variety of crack because I, the last thing that I would expect would be that Nate Diaz would be scared to fight somebody. Now, yeah, accuse think, him of many things, yeah. but that one doesn't really work. Uh, I think that there's a difference between being scared to fight somebody, though, and knowing that fighting somebody... Uh, especially when you're trying to put together a new contract with the UFC, which I think is part of what's going on uh, in this situation, uh, knowing that you that fighting a dangerous dude with a much lower profile than yours is not a smart idea. I think that that's uh, entirely different than being, quote-unquote, scared of somebody. Uh, it's just not necessarily a tactic that we hear about a lot from this particular fight camp. Right. Well, okay, but here's, I guess, if we're going to get, down to the specifics of it. Dana White never said Nate Diaz is scared. Uh, he says Nate turned the fight down. Now, Kogan's version is that uh, the UFC came and said, uh, do, do you want to fight Nurmi? Uh, they asked to rework uh, his contract with, quote, some changes and some modifications. The UFC said, no, we're not going to do it. Diaz said, all right, well, then, you know, we're not going to fight uh, this guy without the, the contract that we want. I guess my question is, does that not count as turning the fight down. I, th I think it kind of does. I mean, you can argue that Dana White knew people were going to make the leap like, hey, Nate Diaz thought he'd lose this fight and that's why he didn't want it. Uh, but, I mean, I guess... For one thing, I don't think you should be airing this shit out over Twitter to begin with, especially if, like with the UFC's kind of selective approach about uh, what's information is private and what is public, uh, and they reserve the right to change that at any time <laughs> if it suits their needs, but get mad at you, the fighter, for trying to do the same thing. Uh, but 
I guess I can't necessarily say that you didn't turn the fight down if they said, hey, will you fight this guy? And you said only with a new contract. And then they said, okay, never mind. I mean, that is kind of turning the fight down. It's not saying, hey, we will not fight that guy, but it is saying we will only fight that guy uh, if you throw in some kind of added incentive. Yeah, no, it is turning the, the the fight down. I don't necessarily know that that part is at issue unless you get tremendously bogged down in the uh, – uh, in the, 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 the actual words of the people involved here, which I would always argue against in this, <laughs> in this industry. Uh, but I, I think that you hit on exactly the right point, And that point is that I, I'm not sure that the president of the company needed to deliver the message in, in quite the blunt and, uh, uh, you know, in, in the way that he did that left a lot to people's imaginations. I don't even know that, that, uh, you would need to put that information out at all, except that the UFC now appears to be kind of trapped in this uh, cycle where they really, really want to break news and, and put out all these fight bookings. And so sometimes, as as we've seen in the past, uh, they, they do it before they even ask guys like they did with uh, with Roddy Nog uh, a couple of months ago. And so, you know, it, it kind of. I would assume, and this is, I guess this is just my conjecture, but like you, if the UFC puts out that a fight is going to happen and then one guy, uh, kind of pulls out of it, that then that makes the UFC mad, for lack of a better term. And then the UFC says stuff about that guy on Twitter, which seems to me like kind of a vicious cycle and one that I, that, uh, you know, I, I'm not a professional fight booker, but one that I wouldn't, get into a lot if I had control over it. Yeah, and that's the thing, is that you do kind of have control over it, and so that's why it seems odd to to keep getting into that. And if you look at, like, this whole thing, before it was supposed to be Melendez uh, and Nermi, right? That was on, like, a little poster that the UFC hung up, and then wait, you know, and it's on, like, didn't the UFC Tonight show, like, report it, you know? Probably, I don't and know. And then, wait, no, 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 that's, that, that fight's not official. I mean, it just seems like yeah, if if you're the ones who can, who get to decide when a fight is official or not, and you're also the ones that get to decide when you have kind of put it out there and and started to try and get people thinking about it, you kind of got no one to blame but yourself when when you know this little storm keeps swirling around and you say, oh, we can't find anybody to fight this dude. Well, maybe you know figure that out before you tell us who's going to fight the dude, right? Yeah, and is it possible that it's going to be really that hard to find a fight for Habib Nurmagomedov? It seems like, you know, you got 500 fighters on the roster and and Michael Johnson who has already come out publicly. Yeah, he just fought and said that he would he would fight him at, at some point in the future and you know, Johnson seemed like he'd be a pretty good matchup. Like he he's definitely uh uh turned things around from where he was coming out of the ultimate fighter uh and now has himself set up for 2014 looking like a uh significant prospect in the division i, I would think that to have somebody like him uh fight uh, nermi would be uh would be just what the doctor ordered but it, it, like i don't know just because nate diaz won't do it i would think that that guys would be lining up to fight each other in that division where uh, you're probably going to have to win four or five fights in a row before you get a title shot. Yeah, and that is true. Like it's it's hard to say, hey, nobody will fight the guy when you've got other people jumping up and down saying, pick me, pick me. What you mean is no, you know, the dudes you've asked so far aren't really uh, immediately agreeing to do what you want, and then you know you're getting upset at them. And I guess that that to me seems like the issue here. It's the same thing we've heard before, right? When hey, the UFC doesn't talk about money, it doesn't talk about what it pays people because. 
depending on which explanation you get, maybe it's because they have a bunch of crazy aunts and uncles who will be hitting them up for money once they know that all these guys are secret millionaires or something, right? That's one of the, the arguments that Dana White uses, why they don't tell us exactly what they get paid. But let somebody complain about money and boom, out it comes, like exact figures about what they were paid and everything. And it seems like kind of a similar thing here where, you know, you got these negotiations that take place behind the scenes. And, you know, if a fighter wants to come out and talk about that stuff, maybe won't be looked on too kindly by the UFC. But the UFC wants to air everybody else's business. And it kind of acts as like this unstated threat, right? Like that, that's got to help in negotiations if you're the UFC. Like if you're trying to get this dude to accept this fight, if you know that there's the possibility that if you turn it down, the UFC might put you on blast, as as you said at the top of this segment. Go out there on Twitter and tell all the people, hey, you know, we wanted to make this fight, but this dude didn't want it. Uh, you know, subtext, he's scared, didn't want that, was scared he's going to lose that fight. That kind of gives you an extra little kick in the butt to go ahead and take that fight, doesn't it? Yeah, and I mean, I, I would think, especially if you're Nate Diaz and you're one and two in your last last three fights, I don't know that... that uh, you have a tremendous amount of leeway to be calling the shots here. But at the same time, hey, he's the only Diaz they got left. That's man. true. That is true. He does still have a name and he's got some value uh, in a promotional sense. This to me also seems to sort of underscore uh, the thing that that uh, I know that you talked about a little bit with uh, Joe Silva when you did the, the feature story on him for the uh, newspaper where he was basically saying that a lot of his job is talking guys down when they come into the room feeling like they should be making huge amounts of money. And then he has to sit there and have unpleasant conversations with them about why they're not worth what they think they're worth. And right. I don't know, maybe there's something the, the sort of in that vein going on here, just because like we said, Diaz, obviously a name, but at the same time, been a little down in his last three fights. Right. Well, and you know, uh, I saw that, uh, Dan Henderson went on the MMA Fortnite, uh, I think today and was talking about his contract negotiations with the UFC and saying that, uh, they were trying to, to lowball him, that he thought it was a surprising figure. You know, since he's kind of been on a downswing, he was expecting a little bit of a, a pay cut when they came to talk a new contract, but it was way worse than he thought it was going to be. Uh, that kind of stuff, I think if you're the UFC, it doesn't uh, it doesn't come out looking that great for you. You'd rather not have dudes out there, uh, if you can help it, talking about how uh, the UFC is trying to severely lowball all of us um, because it doesn't make it look like you're doing as well as you say you're doing financially, right? Yeah, especially with a guy like Dan Henderson, who you know a lot of people are are are. Uh, they like him, I guess. Right. Uh, you know, he's a popular guy. And he has a reputation and, uh, as a straight shooter. He has a reputation as a straight shooter. He's a little bit long in the tooth. It seems like Dan Henderson's probably uh, isn't going to come back and fight unless you pay him a little chunk of change. Uh, he seems like the wrong guy to get into a really public contract dispute with, although they've done it with him in the past. Right. So it's uh, maybe not too big of a shock. Anyway, uh, let's do Just Saying Stuff, and then uh, we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, I'm sure that you saw it. Uh, this past week, uh, breaking news across the internet that it seems uh, MMA pioneer and UFC forefather Ken Shamrock had, at least for a certain amount of time, found gainful employment working as a bodyguard for the rapper 50 Cent. Awesome. And I guess I'm just saying I'd rather have Ken Shamrock doing that than fighting Tank Abbott in somebody's backyard on the on uh, on YouTube. Right. At least he's uh you know found a found a, a niche for himself there. Now all he has to do is like, you know, when when Fifty Cent pushes some model into a pool at a party, like Ken's the guy who has to get her a towel. 
Is that it? Yeah, get her a taxi, slip her a couple hundred dollar bills so she doesn't talk to TMZ about it. Right. Seems like something Ken Shamrock would be pretty good at, Yeah, as far as I'm concerned. Well, happy ending there. That's right. Well, Chad, I'm just saying, I don't know if you realize this, but while we sit here just up to our balls in Turkish delight. Indeed, sir. The actual Turkish delight, Alptekin Akzilak. Nailed it. The man nicknamed the Turkish delight that got us started down this goddamn rabbit hole in the first place. He's fighting this week. He's on the ultimate, the, the UFC fight night 35 card, uh, Wednesday night. Dude just fought, uh, in, uh, December. I, I believe it was what, uh, December 14th. Now he comes back pretty much a month later. The Turkish delight back in action. Chad, I'm just saying, I feel like somehow we're inextricably bound up with Alptekan Ozkilak. It's like we have a connection with yeah, him. Yeah. I'm just saying. I feel close to the guy now. Just saying. And wow. Turkish Delight is still gross. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. We'll be back next week to break down everything that happened to the Turkish Delight, uh, both in the cage and here on my dining room table. As for right now, though, we're done. We're through. We are out. So are we just going to give this to some bums or something? Or what? Because there's plenty hanging out down at the gas station. As soon as we're done here... You and me, we're taking off our shirts. <laughs> <laughs>